Amen. Let's get our Bibles out and open up to the book of Psalms. Find Psalm 73. Psalm 73, right there in the middle of your Bible. Should be the book of Psalms. 73 is the middle of the book of Psalms almost, page 668. Of course, 119 throws that way off center, but it's close. Psalm 73, Psalm of Asaph. Asaph, the worship leader, author of 12 Psalms. I appreciate Asaph's psalms and his uh, openness and honesty and willingness to share uh, all that he is, his faults, his struggles, his fears. It's a great gift that God's given us in Psalm 73. Let's pray and ask God's help, and then we'll study together. Father, we thank you for your perfect and errant word. And Lord, we pray now that through the power of the Holy Spirit, you'll take this word and open up our lives and our minds to be able to walk through the journey of Psalm 73 with Asaph. We thank you for this recorded text. Thank you for this man and his struggles and his doubts. Thank you for his journey that is all of our journey. And Lord, now we pray that you might give us ears to hear that this word would impact our lives and change us to be more like you. We thank you for what you'll do in Jesus' name. Amen. In the early 1800s, the thought of a missionary going to a foreign country to share the gospel was, was unheard of. It was, uh, it was just something that uh, life, I guess, was, had been hard enough and uh, the journey had had enough of its uh, struggle on its own. But to abandon your way of life and go to some strange and foreign place to bring the gospel was just... Uh, Preposterous, And then along comes a man named Adoniram Judson. He was a brilliant man. We know a lot about him. He was valedictorian at Brown, which uh, even today is uh, a very prestigious institution of higher learning. He um, was a young man at age 25 years old. He received his college education, um, married his sweetheart Nancy, and 12 days later set out to India. Now this marked the very first American who ever left our country to go overseas to share the gospel. Well, as he endeavored to go to India, this foreign and strange land that was a mystery to most people. He ended up in Rangoon, Burma. And what he found there was horrible living conditions. People who 
were many, many uh, generations behind what he was accustomed to. There were deplorable uh, health situations, uh, sanitary situations, just everything was, uh, was an unbelievable challenge. Their first child was born, a son. He lived six months before he died of an uncontrollable fever. Adoniram and Nancy labored away in this foreign land trying to disciple uh, these people. Over time, they learned the language. They began to ingrain themselves and get used to this very difficult way of life. After 10 years of laboring on the field... His journal says that there were 18 baptized converts. Things were looking up. Then a war broke out between Burma and England. And of course, Judson being English uh, was caught in a very uh, precarious situation. The Burmese government arrested him as a spy uh, simply because he spoke English, I suppose, and threw him into not just a prison, but what was called a death camp. These death camps were places where the Burmese would hold their prisoners, and the way they would torment them is not only by um, chaining their ankles together and leaving them chained all day. They would elevate their uh, their feet, pull the chain so that they dangled by their feet and their only their, the tip of their head and the back of their shoulders touched the ground, and they'd make them sleep like that every night. But that was the good part. The bad part was is that every day someone was executed, but no one ever knew who it would be. So these uh, prison guards would march in and, and randomly choose someone and then execute them in front of the other prisoners. And so it just made for this daily agony of torment, never knowing when your day would come. This went on for 18 months. All the while that he's in this death camp, Nancy is fighting for survival on her own. He doesn't even know that she's pregnant. And over the course of these 18 months while he's in this prison, in this death camp, she gives birth to a daughter... He finally is released and realizes that um, he has a a baby daughter. But his wife and his daughter are in terrible health. They have barely had any food to eat and were barely uh, able to find enough to sustain them. And so about that time, as they're about to regroup and get back to um, their work, the, the king of Burma shows up and takes Adoniah to the capital to be his negotiator. It's thought that because he was the only known person in Burma who could speak both English and the native Burmese language, that he was the only one that the king could use to negotiate with England to resolve the war. So... 
once again, he's snatched away. As he is uh, serving in this capacity, which he had no choice but to do, he receives a letter that simply says, Dear Sir, your wife Nancy has perished. He immediately rushed home to uh, deal with the situation, only to find that four months after that, his little girl died as well. Now, here's what I ask you. How do you resolve all that? How how is it that on one hand, the Bible can introduce us to this sovereign God who has authority and power over all things, who is good and loving and just and holy and righteous. And on the other hand, here is a, an individual who turned his life completely over to serve the Lord and put himself in great danger and peril and wound up with years of excruciating suffering and pain and ultimately alone, having lost two children and his wife. How do we make sense of that? Meanwhile, mind you, while all this is going on, what do you think, what do you think his classmates from Brown are doing? What do you think all the people who watched him graduate valedictorian, who thought, you're insane, I wouldn't go to those native mongrel people. All of them who stayed and were living their lives in leisure and enjoyment, who were uh, receiving all the blessings and benefits of all the things that the world that they live in has to offer, Never giving a thought to Jesus. Never giving a thought to sacrificing their life for Him. And they're just going along. Living every day, wondering what they're, where they're going to eat or what they're going to do. Where they might vacation or whatever the case may be. How do you resolve all that? Who would sign up for this plan? You see, sometimes our desire is to see God as enough. We, we want Him to be enough. We, we want to be able to say that, you know, God is enough for me. That, that if, if, if I lost everything else but all I had was Him, it would be enough. See, for God to be enough, it means that, in essence, we're saying we really don't need anything else. We may want other things. It may be that we'd like other things. But if He's enough in and of Himself, then we really don't need anything else. That we could find total satisfaction in Him alone not looking for anything else. Other things will come and other things will go. 
But in Him, we find our utter and complete satisfaction. I mean, don't we want that to be true? I mean, sure, we say that. We, we, we could sing that. But how do you get there? Can you get there? Is it possible to get there? Could you get to the place where he would actually be enough? What if your what if your greatest challenges don't ever change? What if what if the things that you most fear come true? What if What if your prodigal doesn't come back? What if your health never turns around? What if your finances stay a disaster? What if your marriage just continually struggles? What about then? What if, what if what you dream of and long for is never to be? Is he enough? How does a person get to where he's enough? Towards the end of Psalm 73, in verses 25 and 26... The psalmist says, Who have I in heaven but you? And there is none upon earth that I desire besides you. My flesh and my heart fail. But God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. How do you get there? How does that actually become true? See, here, here's the problem with a statement like that. I think the tendency for us is to just say, is to want to be there so bad that we just try to magically, mentally put us in a place where that's where we are. But I don't think that's possible. I don't think it's possible to mentally put yourself there. I think it's possible to get there, but I think there's only one way to get there, and it's the same for me as it is for you as it was for ASAP. See, or you could look at that statement and you could say, whatever salvation ASAP got, I didn't get. Whatever whatever amount of faith he got, I didn't get. Whatever quantity of the Holy Spirit he got, I didn't get that. But that's something different than what I have. That is a that is a, a far different experience with God than I have. I I'm I'm weak and I I don't think I could I don't think I could get to the place where Asaph is. I think about Adonai Judson and I 
I just get wrecked inside. Maybe, maybe in your heart, when I, when I was telling you that story, secretly, you were saying, that's exactly why I'll never go to India. To which I would say to you tonight, you then, my friend, will never say what Asaph said in verse 25 and 26. You can get there, but you have to go the way he went. Now, Asaph is a worship leader in Israel. He is a person who knows who God is. We enter the context of this psalm. We don't know a lot about Asaph other than what the Holy Spirit tells us through his psalms, really. But what you do in Psalm 73 is you embark on this journey with a very human struggle. So this worship leader says in verse 1, Truly God is good to Israel, to such as are pure in heart. The beginning point of his psalm is this assumption that God's good. In fact, he says, surely, he is is somewhat, uh, maybe even utterly convinced that God is good. But notice what he says. Notice how he says it. Notice his reliance upon God's goodness being physical. That truly this God is good to Israel. He's good to Israel, meaning that Israel would, would physically be able to respond to his goodness, that God's goodness is immediate, that it's apparent, that it's evident, that we would experience the goodness of God in the here and now. That's where we all begin. That's what happens. You become a Christian. Some of you in this room are, you know, in your... There's a few of you in here that are in your first year of walking with Christ. And so you you are a new believer. You are this brand new creation. And you possess all of this capacity. But you don't understand so much about how... All these pieces fit together. And so you would say with Asaph, Oh, truly, God is good. Because you've heard other people say that and you've affirmed that in your your heart and you've heard me say that over and over. And so you know mentally and intellectually that that's what the Bible teaches about God. And to such as are pure in heart, That God's goodness is something that you can tangibly taste and feel. Because let's face it, you've 
you've tasted that. You've felt that. You've, you, you're walking now in newness of life. But then comes the next challenge. You walk out the door. You leave church. Beth, this morning, leaves a new person. And what does she find when she goes out into the world? Does she find a world that is affirming the statement that surely God is good? (laughs) Yeah. Oh, no. That's not what she finds. She finds verse 2. But as for me, my feet had almost stumbled. My steps had nearly slipped. For I was envious of the boastful when I saw the prosperity of the wicked. She walks out into a world, the same world that I walked out in, that you walk out in. We walk out into a world and we see wicked people boasting in their wickedness, proud of of their uh, rebellion against God, who are not only not concerned about whatever you believe in, whatever supposedly transformed your life or whatever wacky cult you've joined. But hey, my life is good and I'm enjoying it. And you've got to be a fool to believe the things that you believe. Look at what Asaph says in verse 4. For there are no pangs in their death, but their strength is firm. They're not in trouble as other men, nor are they plagued like other men. Therefore, pride serves as their necklace. Violence covers them like a garment. Their eyes bulge with abundance. They have more than heart could wish. They scoff and speak wickedly concerning opposition. They speak loftily. They set their mouth against the heavens and their tongue walks through the earth. They're laughing at Judson. They are convening at their 10-year reunion at Brown University from from 1812. And they're laughing in his face. They're going, what a moron you are. We told you not to do that. We told you not to go off there to some strange land. And look at you now. And meanwhile, look at us. Look at how we've prospered. Look at the cars we've purchased and the homes we have. Look at our wonderful, healthy families. Look at our property. Look at our possessions. Look at the fatness of our bellies to the point where our eyes bulge out. For Meanwhile, your wife and, and infant daughter are starving to death as you are serving the Lord. What a joke you are. You're a joke. And well, what do you say? Because, let's be honest, you're kind of feeling like a joke. I mean, it's kind of hard to get around the facts, right? It's kind of hard to get around the reality. I mean, it's always awesome. You know, when... When somebody gets saved and then God does something great in their life and, you know, they, they get the job they long for, or suddenly, you know, the, 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 their marriage 
comes together or whatever it is, you know, happens. It's awesome. But what happens when somebody gets saved and then the next day their house burns to the ground? Uh, huh. See, we don't know what to do with that. Wait a minute, you're telling me Sunday God moves in your heart and you come down and, and He saves you and you're born again to a new and living hope and then the next day, the next day, well, I'm sorry. Uh, it's cancer in your pancreas and... uh There's nothing we can do. Well, what do you do with that? And what do all the unbelievers around you do with that? They eat it up. And they shove it in your face. And you just think, I don't understand. We try not to talk about. It's like we try to we try to live on this razor thin wire that separates the world and the physical world and the spiritual world. It's like we all know That all the richest, most famous people, all the people that are on all the magazines, all the people that everyone wants to dress like and look like and act like and talk like, all those people are pagans. We all know that, but we don't, we just don't talk about it. We don't know what to, and when we do talk about it, we just most of the time make ourselves sound stupid. Because we're trying to convince whoever we're talking to that, Oh, all those things that they have, but they're really miserable. I mean, they they have millions of dollars, but inside they're miserable. And maybe that's true, but maybe that's not. Maybe, maybe they're having the time of their life. You, You think all pagans are miserable? Is that what you think? I know lost people that are happily married, totally lost, been married a long time. I know Christian people that can't hold it together for five years. I know lost people that are honorable, hardworking people. Great at their job, very successful, have everything they want. See, it jacks us up when pagans aren't miserable. As long as there's somewhere they're miserable, we're okay. But the thought that in their paganness, they could be enjoying their life, we don't know what in the world to do with that. And when we talk to them, We just keep trying to dig around. I mean, I think of all the hilarious ways that this shows itself. I mean, I can pick on us because we're us, right? So, I mean, I can make fun of Christians. I I are one. 
Did you ever did you ever wonder something? Now I'm not saying this has never happened. I'm just saying I've never seen it. I have knocked on a pool of many a door in my life. Many doors. How you doing? Hey, it's Tony from Michael Memorial. Just wanted to come by and see how you were doing. Is there anything I can pray for you about? You know, maybe uh, just wanted to tell you that Jesus loves you. I'd like to share a little about that. Are you a church-going person? Uh, you got any kind of church background? You ever go to church? You ever consider going to church? be nice if you come to our church. You know, that whole spiel done that many times. Seen lots of people do that. Guess what I've never seen? I've never, ever seen Christians knocking on doors and evangelizing in the rich neighborhood. Never. Never. I've never, ever, ever, ever seen them knocking on the door to the big mansion. Hey, how you do? You know why? I don't know why. Here's my guess. Because they're not going to listen to you because they've got everything they want. And they're going to look at your little goofy self and go, excuse me. You want me to do what? You want me to be like you? Now, why would I want to be like you? So what we do is we go to the trailer parks and knock on the doors. Because they'll listen. Now, we don't say that, but that's what we do. You see, their pride serves as a necklace. Oh, they, they scoff. They speak wickedly of whatever oppresses them. They, they, they look at their oppression like, oh, there's nothing to it. Their speech is lofty. I mean, they've got the world by the tail. Verse 10, therefore, his people return here, and waters of a full cup are drained by them. And they say, how does God know? And is there knowledge in the Most High? And Asaph says, Behold, these are ungodly who are always at ease. They increase in riches. They just prosper. You know how this goes. You work so hard. You work so hard to raise your children and nurture them in Christ. You, you, you're, you're here every Sunday night. Your kids are over in Awana. I mean, think of the time and energy that you've invested in. in because let's face it, it takes as much of your time as it does their time. For every book that's accomplished, you ought to get a medal. All of y'all ought to be wearing vests, right? Man, I mean... Two Timothy Awards like to kill me and Lisa. So you, you work so hard to, to teach them good things and to teach them about God. And, and then awards day comes at school and guess who gets the character award? The pagan kid. Oh, yeah. The same. The, and then the, the pagan kids win all the academic things. They're the stars of the uh, the sports teams and the, on and on and on. And, you know, you're working so hard. 
And there just seems to be no recognition. You know, you, you and your wife are just, man, you, you're just, you work, you work, you work. You're, you're in church together and you're, you're working on your relationship and you're going to marriage conferences, you're studying, you're going to Sunday school classes, teaching on marriage. And, you're, you're, and yet, you know, you, you're, your brother who never even thinks about walking into a church, you know, him and his wife are like best friends and it seems to come so easy to them and they never argue and they never fight. And you're just like, really? And you know, you try to tell yourself, yeah, but late at night when they lay their head down, they're afraid to go to sleep. No, they're not. They're not afraid to go to sleep. They got the most expensive burglar alarm you can possibly buy. They're not afraid to go to sleep. They got a safe room in their house, man, with digital control panels on it. They ain't afraid. You're the one who's afraid. But you won't admit that. Because, I mean, we're Christians. And the... The people who follow God look around and they see a lot of people around them who don't follow God prospering. How do you... What do you do? Well, I've seen this derail a lot of families over the years. You know, your kids, they get to be a certain age and they start to get their own interests and get more involved in the lives of their friendships and relationships. And so, you know, your, your kids' best friends live across the street. And it's okay at first when they're small, they start growing up. But, you know, the family across the street, they don't really go to church. You know, they're, they do their own thing and... So when you're getting up every Sunday morning coming to church, they're going out on the boat and they're water skiing and barbecuing and, man, it's having fun. And, I mean, let's face it, what what 10-year-old doesn't want to spend the night over there on Saturday night, man? I mean, heck, if I could spend the night at your house and with my best friend, the next day we go out on the boat, we're going to, you know, they don't have the wherewithal to understand the implications of everything that's going on. And then it starts this little conflict in your house. And they're like, well, man, come, well, why can't we have a boat? I mean, why, why can't we get a camper? I mean, why can't we have fun on, well, why do we have to go to church all day on Sunday? And why do we have to go to church on Wednesday night? And you know what I mean? How come we can't? And then finally, you know, some parents, they get tired of fighting the battle and they just go get a boat. They go, man, this Jesus thing, it ain't paying off. I mean, all we do is work and try to stay out of debt and do the right thing and live conservatively and and everybody else is having all the fun. Sometimes following God is, man, 
it's, it's not just not easier. It's way harder. It seems like what we have is a whole list of things we're not supposed to do and then a other, another whole list of things that we got to do. Sometimes you start resenting the high calling of following Christ. And so there's Asaph. He's a worship leader. He's having his red light moment. And envy begins to dig into his heart and and erode on his faith a little bit. And you know what? I appreciate he has the courage to admit it. He basically tells us that what bothers him the most is not the sins of the arrogant, but the success of the arrogant. See, that's not very spiritual. You know, a worship leader ought to be concerned about the sin of the pagan. But to get to where we need to go, we have to be honest with ourselves and realize really long before that ever happens, what we're really concerned about is the success of it. It just drives us crazy. He says in verse 3, remember he said, I'm envious of the boastful. I see them as they're the prosperity of the wicked. Then he gets to verse 13. He says, surely I've cleansed my heart in vain and washed my hands in innocence. He's saying... Now, now remember, he started out, his opening statement is, God is good. Praise the Lord. Man, as long as you're not looking around, everything going on around you, man, he is good. But as soon as he got out there into the world and realized what was going on, it was, man, I've cleansed my heart in vain. I've washed my hands in innocence. For all day long, he says, verse 14, I've been plagued and chastened every morning. All I get is discouragement. All I get is struggle. And he starts becoming cynical about morality. He starts thinking, hmm, I'm not sure being good really pays. This kind of seems like a raw deal to me. And then... Something happens in verse 15. It's the first shift. He says, If I had said, I will speak thus, behold, I would have been untrue to the generation of your children. In other words, he, in the midst of all this weakness and struggle, he acknowledges in verse 15 that he's not like them, that he can't, say the things that they say, that there is some boundary to my doubt, that I'm different. Verse 16, when I thought how to understand this, it was too painful for me. It was too painful for me. 
You, you remember walking through this journey? Come on, there's folks in this room, man. You've been walking this path for a lot of decades, longer than me. You're weathered from the storms. You've been there, done that. You remember when you used to try to understand this and it was too painful? Just, I don't know. And Asaph, he, he teaches us some, some principles about just being honest and being real and living in a world where things are not the way we think they ought to be. And so in verse 17, he says, Until I went into the sanctuary of God, then I understood their end. Now, the tendency is to focus on, then I understood their end. But that would be a mistake. Because you would miss the primary principle that this scripture is teaching you tonight. Right here, he says what is so very important for you and me to get. Until I went. I want you to listen very closely to what I'm about to say. Asaph initiated contact with God. He moved to God in his doubt. He didn't move away from God. He moved to God. In his bewilderment, in his lack of understanding, in his frustration, in his depression, in his darkness, in his sorrow, in his agony, in his pain, in all of that, he moved to God. Now that is a very, very important truth. That he went into the sanctuary. How many people in Asaph's situation turned and went the other way? And suffered unspeakable calamity. But Asaph turned. And he went towards God. Which is what you always do in your doubt. In your frustration. In your sorrow. In your need. You go towards God. And so he goes to the sanctuary of God. The, the, the way for you to understand that is not like walking into this room, okay? That is not, Asaph knew nothing of walking into something like this. Nothing. The sanctuary of God is the presence of God. What Asaph would understand is the tabernacle of God, the dwelling place of God, the place where the presence of God is, that he moved to the presence of God. He went to where the presence of God is. He got into the presence of God. And then he understood therein. He begins to think not in terms of physical, immediate realities that he can see with his eyes, but in Eternal, eternal perspectives, eternal things. He sees their end. Verse 18, surely you set them in slippery places. You cast them down to destruction. Oh, how they are brought to desolation as in a moment. They're utterly consumed with terrors as a dream when one awakes. So, Lord... When you awake, you shall despise their image. 
You see, if we get our worldview, if we get our understanding of the world that we live in from the immediate, we only see the immediate. If you look around and you you sort out what's going on around you, you you make sense of the world in which you live in based on what is going on in the here and now. That's all you'll ever see. That's all you'll ever understand. You'll only see the world through lenses of the immediate. You'll never see the world through the ultimate. Never. You have to look through the lens of who God is and what He has said. You have to think in eternal terms. You have to, you, you see, because let me tell you something. In an immediate moment, at a red light, I can mentally stop tithing and buy that car. But as soon as I think eternally, Something changes. Not only am I not buying that car, you couldn't pay me to buy that car. There's no force in this world that you could... I'm, I'm so suddenly everything changes. I'm, I've gone from wishing I was driving that to going, God, thank you that I'm not driving that. Thank you that I'm yours. Thank you. Thank you that I'm in your family and in your kingdom. Thank you that you allow me to participate. Thank you. Everything changes because I'm thinking forever and ever, infinitely forward. Man, that, I mean, that thing's gone in an instant. You see, Asaph, he, he moves towards God and he understands their end. He looks eternally and everything comes into focus. You see, you, every day you wake up in a world that is doing everything in its power to get you to look at the immediate and utterly ignore the ultimate. That's all this world wants to do. That's every, every scenario that you encounter is about the immediate. What can, what can immediately be? Every commercial you see is devoted to getting you to succumb to the immediate and to abandon what will eventually happen. So you, we, we sit in our homes and we watch commercials of people who are happy and skinny and beautiful and tan. And they're drinking light beer and they're laughing together and they're having an adventure and you're just a fat slob sitting on your couch. With Hawaiian punch. What a loser. You ain't never seen the fat slob on the commercial, not one time. Nope. You've never seen the, the, the beautiful person that gets sloppy drunk and gets in their car and then smashes into a family and kills them. Goes to jail for DUI. You don't see that. They don't show you the ramifications of alcoholism in the commercial. See, the ultimate end, they don't want you to know that. They just want you to know right now. 
They want you to think about, just look with your human eyes and see right now. Right now. But God's not in the immediate. He's in the ultimate. His plan is unfolding. And you've got to be able to look past today and realize what's coming around the corner. Verse 21, thus my heart was grieved. Boy, I mean, he, he, boy, look at the change. Now, all of a sudden, look, he's, he's grieved and I was vexed in my mind. I realized I was so foolish and ignorant. I was like a beast before you. You see what's happening? He's saying, God, what a moron I am. I'm like a beast. You know what animals can't do? Animals cannot walk by faith. All they got is sight. That's all they got. Animals are the epitome of the immediate. I was just imagining going home tonight and opening the drawer. Of course, as soon as the you just touch, you could just touch the handle on this drawer in my kitchen. You could just go, boop, and Oscar goes, shoom, because he knows that's where the treats are in that drawer. I mean, he he has some supersonic hearing like you can't even imagine. You could just touch it, and he's like, shoom. Then you open that drawer, and he's like. And you reach in there and you pull that little treat out. And you go, now, I want you to save this till tomorrow. Can you do that for me? If you save this till tomorrow, I'll give you three instead of one. It's gone. Asaph's like, I'm like a beast. I'm like a dog. What was I thinking? Verse 23, Nevertheless, I'm continually with you, and you hold me by my right hand, and you guide me with your counsel, and afterwards receive me to glory. You see, he had so focused on what God hadn't done for him that he missed what God was doing for him. You see, he he got consumed with what was going on with other people. We got to move forward, but let me just say this. There are so many personal faith problems that could be solved right now. If every person in this room would receive the reality that sheep focusing on other sheep is a disaster. It's a disaster. 
my life would be so much easier. So many of the problems that I have to deal with in the body of Christ would be resolved if sheep stopped looking at other sheep. Sheep look to the shepherd, ladies and gentlemen. They don't look at sheep. Don't be fixated on what other sheep are doing, what they're saying. You focus on the shepherd. You listen for his voice. You do what he says. But man, Satan's got an agenda for you. Seems so simple, but it seems so elusive for some people. I don't understand. Verse 25. Whom have I in heaven but you? And there is none upon the earth that I desire besides you. My flesh and my heart fail, but God is my strength, the strength of my heart and my portion forever. For indeed, those who are far from you, they shall perish. You have destroyed all those who desert you for harlotry. But it is good for me to draw near to God. I have put my trust in the Lord God that I may declare all your works. How do you get there? How do you get there? How do you get to where you realize that the ultimate blessing is not the gifts of God, but the presence of God? How do you get there? When you're not focusing on other sheep, you're not looking at the world around you. You're looking at the shepherd. See that verse 28, that phrase in the first part of that, but it is good for me to draw near to God. In the Hebrew, that phrase is, the nearness of God is my good. The nearness of God is my good. I draw near to God because the nearness of God is my good. I just want to be near Him. So what about Adoniram Judson? What about our, our friend? Well, he died. Because everybody dies. And after he died, his friends all got together and put together a memorial service to honor his life. And uh, they remarked that there was this one particular phrase that really marked his life, that he that, that was sort of his, his uh, mission statement, if you will, that defined who he was as a person. And so they used this to summarize his life. The statement was, Think much on the love of Christ. Think much on the love of Christ. So how'd he do? Those first 10 years on the ground, him and Nancy slugging it out after the death of their son. But 18 converts, 18 baptized converts, that's pretty remarkable. Then he gets arrested, he gets imprisoned. All these horrible things happen. His wife dies. Then his daughter dies. 
He's all alone. All alone. So at his death, there were 7,000 Christians in Burma and 63 churches. Today. Right now. Adoniram Judson was a Baptist. There's 1.5 million Baptists in Burma today. So who is really the loser? And who's the winner? And maybe more applicable for me and you as we close this time together is to ask ourselves the question, what changed? Why the first 10 years, 18 people? And then at the end of his life, 7,000, 63 churches. Wouldn't you think he'd be more effective with his wife by his side, more zealous in the beginning as he was, he was still uh, believing the impossible? He hadn't been jaded by circumstances. Wouldn't you think that? What's the difference between his early years and his later years? Scars. That's the difference. If you're here tonight and you can say, Whom have I in heaven but you? There is none upon the earth that I desire besides you. There's only one way you got there. Scars. Because that's the only way to get there. It's the only way. Because apart from suffering, all you can do is convince yourself of this mental reality that God is good. But until your life depends on it, you don't really know that. So who really wins? Adonai Judson wins. But really, he only wins because He's with the one who always wins. He always wins. So don't let the prosperity of the wicked trouble you. Just keep looking. Past the immediate things to the ultimate things. And remember that we sing about Christ coming back. He's coming back. I'm going home. I can assure you I'm going home. And when I get there, 
There ain't no red lights in heaven. There's no speed limit in heaven. And my heart will never, ever, ever long for anything else again because I'll have everything in Him. Let's stand and bow our heads.